In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, you may be seated. So this is a part three of our series going through the means of grace. And the overall question for our series, if you're aware, is what happens when we worship? What happens when we gather together as a body of believers? And the answer we've been hearing is we partake of the means of grace. And so today we are on to our third means of grace, that is preach the Bible. And all the means that hopefully you are catching are based in two ideas. So the first one is the means are based in the word, and then they're in sacrament as well. Of course, we will look at see the Bible. That will be our last message of this series. So we are to read, sing, pray, and preach the word. And then baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments that These are also under the idea of seeing the word, seeing the gospel acted out. So why should we ask this question? Why should we ask the question, what happens when we worship? And it's always helpful to consider what we are doing every time we gather together. It's important to consider why we do the things we do. Do you know how liberal denominations become liberal, but have great liturgy? Because nobody took the time to ask, ask and answer this question. Nobody took the time to say, you know, why do we do these things? And if somebody does, the answer is tradition. We become Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof. And so the question is, how do we benefit from gathering together? How do we benefit? How does this help our Uh, faith and practice? How is partaking of the means of grace together as beneficial as partaking of these things alone? I mean, let's think about it. Can't you read the Bible on your own? Can't you sing the Psalms or whatever on your own? Can't you pray alone? I mean, isn't that what Jesus tells us to do, to pray in your closet? Can't you listen to preachers and take in preaching? Can't you take the Lord's Supper on your own? Part of my job today that I hope I accomplish is to persuade you that gathering together is most beneficial to your walk with the Lord. It's most beneficial to growing in your faith and practice. I would even argue far more so than if you do these things on your own as much as you should do them on your own. So let's start as we think about what is a means of grace. The term means, as defined in the dictionary, is a medium, the medium, method, or instrument used to obtain a result or achieve an end. The medium, method, or instrument used to obtain a result or achievement Uh, or achieve an end. Children, you already understand this concept. You understand this concept because if you ask for something, 
What do you say to get what you want? You say, please. And if you demand something, your parents generally correct you and say, how do you ask for that? You see, the word please is a means to obtain what you want. It also, in part, helps us understand when we think about the phrase, the ends justify the means. Meaning that the end product makes all mediums, methods, and instruments good. But we all know the phrase, the ends don't justify the means. You can do evil things to attend good ends or what you view are good ends. So then a means of grace then is a medium, method, or instrument that allows us to obtain grace or see grace. And so today we're considering preaching as one of those means. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question 88 says, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. And the answer is the outward ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So all those things, the word, sacraments, and prayer are made effectual. They are the means of grace, the means by which people obtain grace. And so for our big idea today, we, as considering preaching as one of those outward means, as a ministry of the word, preaching is a means of grace because of its source of grace, its dispensing of grace, and its assurance of grace. That's our big idea today. Preaching is a means of grace because of its source, of grace, it's dispensing of grace, and it's assuring of grace. So let's consider our first heading, preaching's source of grace. Preaching, if it is to be a means of grace, must be sourced in grace in order to be a means whereby we obtain it. Preaching must be able to access grace like a tap into a maple tree accesses maple syrup. It is because of this access that Paul tells Timothy to focus, as in our text, to focus on reading, teaching, and exhortation. It's because of this access, Paul focuses, uh, tells Timothy to focus, to devote himself to the reading, the teaching, and the exhortation. Paul knows that... <clears throat> The effectiveness of Timothy's ministry will be found in this, the preaching ministry, and nothing else. This is why no, he says, let no one despise you because of his youth. Because if Timothy keeps to these things, his age ultimately won't matter. The people, it won't matter to the people in whom he's ministering to. As he becomes the examples of what to be, and all will see his frog, and all see his progress. It'll be based on the access to grace that preaching has. When he devotes himself to reading scripture publicly, to exhorting the people to follow scripture, and to teaching what it says. And so, as we think about physical maturity, is good, 
But in the end, it's spiritual maturity that makes a preacher. It's that spiritual maturity that makes men preachers. And the spiritual maturity will always show itself or come with evidence. So in keeping with reading and teaching and exhortation, Paul tells Timothy that he will save himself and his hearers. And as we think about verses where there is no explicit verse that says, here are the means of grace in which you are to obey. But as Reformed people, when we talk about more clear verses, defining less clear verses, I think this is one of the more clearer verses about preaching being this means of grace. Although the phrase is here not used. And so as we think about pre uh, preaching source of grace, we have to consider our first question. What is grace? What is grace? The short answer for grace is it is unmerited favor. The longer uh, definition is grace is God's free exercise of moving toward his creation. And this is part of the reason why we see covenants within the scriptures. Because uh, on God's covenants in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says that the distance between creation and God is so vast that God has to make covenants. He has to graciously move toward his creation to fill the gap, even in a good relationship. And so, with favor, although with favor, uh, there's a sense in which favor can be earned, uh, but that's not grace. R.C. Sproul says the essence of grace is its voluntary bestowal. So here's the thing, if you think you earn God's grace, you actually don't deserve God's grace. If you think you're owed something, then you can't possibly get grace. Grace is only grace if it is freely bestowed upon somebody else. Another idea to think about grace is that grace is not an actual thing, but an abstract thing. Grace is not a thing. Sinclair Ferguson in an interview says, there isn't a thing, a substance or a quasi-substance called grace. If I can highlight the thought here, there is no thing that Jesus takes from himself, as it were, and then hands it over to me. There's no thing you possess when it comes to grace. That's why it, during the Reformation, the argument between imputed versus infused is so important. Because here's the issue. You either have grace or you don't. There's no middle ground. And if you think of grace as a thing in which you must obtain and grow, you're actually becoming Roman Catholic. Because the idea of infused grace means that there is something in you that you must cooperate with and grow into, a, into an acceptable point, which is exactly where Rome is at this point. You're infused with grace, you do the sacramental system, and if you get far enough, you get to go to heaven. If you don't quite make it, you've got to go to a place of purging called purgatory to continue to receive enough grace until you can finally get to heaven. 
And it's important to understand that on the flip side of that, the idea of imputed grace means that God reckons to you all that you need. Therefore, there is no more to be added or anything you can do to subtract from it. That's why grace is not this substance by which you have. But here's the thing. In our talk and in our speech, we talk about grace as a thing. And part of it is because we really can't talk about abstracts properly because we don't live in an abstract hypothetical world. We live in an actual world, a substantial world. But at the same time, we also do this because we just, we talk about grace as a thing because of what's called equivocation. Equivocation is when you make something equal to something else. So uh, an example of that is if you make a Big Mac equivalent to a McDonald's. Now, not necessarily wrong, but if you've ever been to McDonald's, you know the menu is much larger than Big Macs. And so here's the thing. We tend to, uh, I don't want to, if you catch yourself, if you realize if this is an idea you're hearing for the first time, I don't want you to come down on yourselves. The fact is, it's not necessarily wrong to speak in this language. I just want to be precise today. I want to be precise today. We tend to equivocate grace with grace says. Graces. We tend to equivocate grace and faith. But the Bible actually makes a difference. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. So definitionally, they're different. But I'm not going to come down on you if you equivocate them. Think about it. We also tend to equivocate grace with knowledge. You grow in grace as you grow in knowledge. But the Bible also makes a difference between these two. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Which means, by definition, there is a difference. And it's interesting to also consider that the disciples ask for something when they could have also asked for grace. And this is what, uh, if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17, there's an example of this. And the reason I bring this example up is because as I was studying, I was reading Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity. It's his commentary on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a highly uh, you know, recommendable resource. But he does this equivocation thing. He talks about that the apostles, when challenged with Je- by Jesus in Luke chapter 17, they ask for grace by saying something else. So let's read uh, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. It says, And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So question, what do the apostles need? 
What is required for forgiveness? Grace, right? I need to be gracious to you. I need to give you something you don't deserve. What do the apostles ask? Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. I want us to consider something here. They didn't ask for grace. They asked for faith. And what does Jesus say? If you even possessed a mustard seed-sized faith, you could do this. But outside of imputed infinite grace, you don't even possess the mustard seed faith. It is grace that is not a thing, but it is God's act towards you. It's not a thing. It's not something that you can possess. It's something you either have or you don't have. And so then what then is grace? It is God's good act towards sinners because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he, and he lived and he died and he rose on the third day because he needed to take down the wall of separation of sin so that God could more freely act towards sinners. Because it's not only that the gap between uh, creator and creation is infinite, but it's even more infinite if there's a wall in between, that of sin. And so it's important that we think about grace. Grace is not a thing, but it is a person. We receive the one in whom every spiritual blessing is given to us, according to Ephesians 1, chapter 3. We receive the Son and therefore can be assured of all things. Romans 8, 32. Grace is not a thing you possess. It's not a thing that Jesus takes out of himself and gives to you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself and everything that entails. And so this means that preaching source of grace is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ as found in the scriptures, in the Bible. The Bible is a series of stories about how God has been gracious, about how God has crossed that infinite gap to miserable sinners who don't deserve God to act in any way. Grace is then most clearly seen in the life, death, death and resurrection on the cross. That is why Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says that he determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Because that's grace. He determined to know, know nothing but grace. This is why Paul wanted to preach to the Romans. If you turn to Romans chapter 1, we heard it read earlier. We're all familiar with Romans 1 chapter 16. But what does Paul say in chapter 15, verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, what does he say in, in verse 15? He says this, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. See, Paul wanted to come to Rome and with them partake in the means of grace through preaching. 
And that's why Paul then later in the same book, Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17, he says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Because grace is not this thing conveyed to you. My words have no magic power to make you more righteous. But inasmuch as they're tapped into Jesus Christ himself, inasmuch as they reveal Jesus Christ, do my words have the ability for you to access grace? So this is why Timothy must devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, into teaching, because these things are all sourced in Christ, who is grace itself. So as you consider the source of grace, let's consider preaching's dispensing of grace. Okay, so if preaching is sourcing grace, how does it then give grace? How are you sitting in the chairs today receiving grace? Especially if grace isn't something you can just grab a hold of. And to think that, as I alluded to earlier, that pastors give you something, that when you come here every Sunday, you're given something tangible, is once again to become Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic priests themselves are the ones that disseminate grace. That's why they say, I forgive you, standing in the stead of our mediator, Jesus Christ, who, who's the only one that can forgive sins. Because grace is a substance in which they divvy out to people. But not so when we think about grace in a more reformed meaning. So preaching, like all the means, has the goal of communicating all the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. And so this is what the whole point of dispensing grace is. It communicates all the grace we have in Christ. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, The book of Ephesians, in which we read the first part today. Uh, in two places, Paul talks about the ability for people to understand the grace in which they have. Starting in chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 15, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's prayer in this section is that your, our hearts would be enlightened to know everything Christ has for us. To know, as he says in chapter 1, verse 3, every spiritual blessing found in Christ. And then later on in the same book, in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, Paul says this, he prays again, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Saints, we need strength to comprehend that. Isn't that part of what Jesus told his disciples many times? I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. Because they had no eyes to see. No minds to comprehend. They had to grow, just like the rest of us. And also notice here that what is Paul praying that would dwell in you? It's not grace, it's Christ. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so preaching takes the power and grace of the gospel and exposes it to all that are within hearing. That's how grace, that's how preaching dispenses grace. Preaching helps remove the veil so that we can be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And that's exactly what we're told in 2 in second, second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. It says that, uh, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Spirit that empowers preaching to expose the glory of Christ, of grace itself. Preaching also takes the veil off of sin, and so the light of Christ shines. That's in the next chapter. Uh, 2 Corinthians, the next verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, it says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, 
Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They proclaim, they preach Jesus Christ so God can say, let light shine in the darkness of human hearts. Preaching dispenses grace. It dispenses grace by exposing and revealing Jesus Christ. This is why we should pray. We pray for our sermons to be a demonstration of spirit and power rather than a demonstration of man's skill or wisdom. Through the spirit is how Christ is bound to the means of preaching. In fact, through the Spirit is how Christ is bound to all the means. Whether it's reading the Bible, singing the Bible, praying the Bible, seeing it within the sacraments, hearing it preached. Christ, the Spirit has bound Christ to these things. I mean, this is how the Great Commission is set up, is it not? The Great Commission, he says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, word and sacrament, baptizing and teaching. But what does he say? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ bound himself to the teaching of and discipling of the nations. That's why we know the commission will be successful. Because Christ has bound himself to it. He hasn't bound some nebulous thing called grace that gets infused in the people and can die. He has bound himself who holds the keys, who holds the keys to Hades, who has conquered death and putting all enemies under his feet. And back to our idea in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel. Why? Because those feet carry Christ. Just as the Levites carried the ark, so our preaching carries Christ himself. If preaching is a revealing of Christ to a greater degree, and that's how it therefore dispenses grace, then there's actually an imperative on ourselves, a duty upon ourselves in which, to con- in which to consider we must make sure we are prepared and present to receive Christ. If preaching is a demonstration of spirit and power, then we should avail ourselves as much as possible to be in hearing of the means because you don't know what will happen. The windows of heaven may be thrown open and Christ pours out his spirit on all of us and revival starts. Because revival always begins with preaching. And if you doubt me, just consider the story of Jonah. How did Nineveh have a revival? Because when Jonah, after being swallowed by the fish, and spat up on the shore, went there and preached God's message. 
In fact, it was part of Jonah's complaint, wasn't it? I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I know you're a gracious God. In fact, I would actually argue that Jonah's revival is one of the greatest recorded in all of Scripture. If you think about the sheer number of people that lived in Nineveh. But if you don't believe me there, think about the book of Nehemiah. The revival that happened there to build the walls. They told Ezra, bring out the book. And Ezra read the book. And then they had people teach the book. And the walls were built. And if you still don't believe me, think about the birth of the church, Pentecost. When were the people cut to the heart? When they saw people speaking in tongues? No. It was after Peter being empowered by the Holy Spirit of Christ preached to the people and told them the gospel. And they said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? And 3,000 souls were saved that day. Revival. Revival. And even in church history, the Reformation, the church tradition which we find ourselves was not merely a revival of doctrine. It wasn't that we just thought better things. But it was a revival of preaching. You read the sermons of Luther. You read the sermons of Calvin. You read the sermons of everybody in that tradition afterwards. They were preachers. Because that's how grace is dispensed to God's people. It's which means that we need to avail ourselves and prepare ourselves to receive this thing. In fact, this is in our confessional documents. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 90, says this, how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? The answer, we must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. We must receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Beloved, have you done this? You've at least attended. But have you, pre have you prepared yourself? Did you know what we would be talking about? Did you pray for the pastors who would be leading the service and the one who would be preaching did you pray that your hearts would be welcoming of grace? Did you pray that you would receive God's word through the spoken preaching, through preaching, would be received in faith and love and laid up in your hearts? Did you do your due diligence to make sure you were here distraction-free? Now, if you did, praise God for his work in you. because That's a gift of grace. But if not, we need to rebuke ourselves. If we weren't diligent in attending the means, we need to rebuke ourselves and pray that God would give us a greater sight of Christ in preaching and in the means of grace. Beloved, the reason you don't want to come here Sundays because you don't think there's anything for you. But what's here for you is a greater sight, greater strength to comprehend the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of God's love. Amen. 
That's what you need. No matter how your week went last week. If you had a great week, you need a greater sight of God's grace. And everything you have, every spiritual blessing you have in Christ. If you had a terrible week, you need a greater sight of every spiritual blessing you have in Christ Jesus. And this pulpit is where you're told that through the means of grace of preaching. It's where you receive that sight. It's literally a place where the blind receive sight of grace, where the deaf receive hearing of grace, and where the mute can learn to speak of grace. This is why Timothy was to present these things before the brothers. It is why he was told to let no one despise him because of his youth, because if he preach, because if he preaches Christ, he preaches everything they need. It doesn't matter the age. It doesn't matter the experience. It doesn't matter anything else. Christ is all in all. Only let someone despise your youth. Let someone despise your experience. Only let someone despise anything if your preaching lacks Christ. And then if a preacher lacks Christ, let them take his pulpit too. That's how great grace is dispensed through preaching. Our last heading is preaching's assurance of grace. Preaching's assurance of grace. Preaching is not a powerless human explanation of the biblical text, but for the Spirit of Christ accompanies it so that the Word achieves its purpose. We're going to go again to a verse we've been going to. Pastor Paul has gone the last few times to Isaiah, book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 10 through 11. It says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall, not, it shall accomplish that which I, which I purpose. And it shall, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. If there's any greater example of God's word being like rain that never returns, preaching is it, because all of my words will never return to me. Every word that comes out of my mouth is out of my mouth, never to come back. I can never unsay anything I've ever said. That's exactly what God does too. He says, my word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me void. And so preaching is a ministry of the word, meaning that the promises of the word are the promises of preaching. If you avail yourself and prepare yourself to be here, you can, if Christ is proclaimed, you can only be blessed. Because God's word does not return to him void. It, it, it accomplishes that which it was sent to do. And so preaching then therefore brings assurance because preaching is a ministry of reminder of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Preaching is a ministry of reminder of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And in the New Testament, 
These phrases are found in a lot of different places. Romans 15, 15. Paul wants to remind people of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 4, 17. Paul wants to send Timothy to remind the Corinthians of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Paul wanted to remind them of the gospel in which he received that Christ died on the third day. In Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 14, he is to remind the people. And in Titus 3, 1, he's to remind people through preaching. Peter himself uses this in two different places. He uses this in 1 Peter 1, 13 to remind people. And in 1 Peter, oh, 2 Peter 1, 13 and 2 Peter 3, 1. And in Jude 5, he said, I wanted to remind you of these things. And there are other places where reminder is a part of preaching. Reminding hearers about the works of God. I mean, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon. What does he do? Reminds the people of God's law and what God did to rescue them out of Egypt. Stephen, the book of Acts, chapter 7, what does Stephen do before he's stoned to death? He works through the works of God before the Pharisees and says, you have forgotten these things. And Christ is a fulfillment of these things. There's many other places where preachers remind their hearers of what God has done because we so easily forget. And so what reminder does for, for us is it continually holds open the windows of heaven that we may continue to look upon Christ and live. It continually holds up the veils or the windows, the dim windows, so we can continue to look at Christ and live in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Was this last week hard for you? Look to Christ. How do you look to Christ? Attend the proclamation of the gospel. We are to look to Christ and consider him so we may not grow weary and faint-hearted to be reminded of who he is and what he's done, even in the worst of times. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 18, says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We look to Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, whom we do not see now, but one day our faith will become sight. We will receive all the grace and the spiritual blessings that we so desire. Are we, uh, in fact, Paul in that same book, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, uh, starting verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Talking about the thorn in his flesh. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul, through his preaching, reminded his hearers and himself, but my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because he has all grace. He doesn't have a portion of Christ's grace. He has all of grace. Abounding grace. Infinite grace. Last one I would bring to you today is book of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. It says this, And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you need someone to tell you this. To remind you that he who began a good work in you will complete that work. God finishes everything he starts. And if grace has been worked in you, then grace will find its finish. And we know this because I can also tell you and preach to you that God has given you the seal of your salvation. He's given you the seal of your salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14, we heard it today. He says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I'm here to tell you that if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are sealed to the bitter end. You can sleep on your pillow calmly every night knowing that if this is truly the day you die, if I die before I wake the Lord my soul to take. Biblical preaching shows and reminds us all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him, Jesus Christ, we utter our amen to God for his glory. Preaching is a reminder of this. It's a reminder that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything God has promised because Jesus Christ is all of grace when he gives himself. But as I start to close our time, I would also remind that preaching is a ministry of reminder to the world of the destruction that is to come. Sinners, if they choose to come 
to the assembly are reminded that today is a day of salvation. Grace is being exposed for them to receive by faith. Sinners are reminded that man is destined once to die and then judgment. Sinners are reminded that there is no other name under heaven by which they can be saved. Sinners are reminded that we preach that Christ will put all enemies under his feet, including the sinner themselves. But grace, grace is available. Grace is available. It is being given out so they can be received. Preaching as a means of grace reminds us that grace, it reminds us all that grace is Jesus Christ himself who will save all who repent and believe and through that faith obtain grace for salvation. That's what preaching does. Reminds you, wherever you are, repent, believe, hold to Christ by faith and he will never let you go. Let us pray. Heavenly Father,